Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome back. Let's go around and say our names. My name is Jeff. My name is Louis. Luke. Bob. Mark. Manuel. George. Nicholas. Mark. Kathleen. <laughs> Anyone here for the first time? Great. Welcome to Oh, thank you. Um, some old time members back again. Great to see you all. Um, we're lucky to have uh, Kathleen Woods, who's a longtime denizen and teacher at the uh, Zen Center. She's a psychotherapist and a wise, warm, and witty woman. So, welcome back. <laughs> ongoing practices is not to get the psychotherapy confused with the Zen. They're actually two different things. So I had forgotten that the last time I came I said I was a psychotherapist. If I'm speaking too low and you're having trouble hearing me, hearing me, just point to your ear. I understand that because I'm hard of hearing myself and um, so I'll do my best to project today. What I'd like to talk about today is um, two things that keep coming up over and over again, either when I speak to people that I work with uh, at Zen Center or for me, and actually in practice for almost everyone. Uh, it's an ongoing thing. And that is, um, what are we actually doing when we meditate? And the other one is um, about reactivity. <coughs> reactivity is um, our human nature and the way we work with it in the world. Both of those things come up all the time. So that's where I'm going to start. Recently, I've been teaching a class in sacred reading in this class, we, um, our intention as we start off is to take one single book, usually Dharma, something relating to the Dharma, either a sutra or a commentary, and read it for half an hour every day. Um, everyone who came to this class was clearly a book junkie. There was no doubt about that. Everybody came in just like me with um, three or four books that they were going with. 
And initially I thought to myself, this is going to be pretty easy. This is going to be pretty simple. All we're going to do is read a book for half an hour a day and try to apply one thing from that reading to our practice during that day. This is, it sounds really easy, doesn't it? <laughs> so <clears throat> this is based on a book called Sacred Reading, The Art of Lectio Divina which is by uh, a Benedictine abbot in Australia. He is a very clear thinker, and he has worked with this particular practice for years and years and years. And so in this book, he describes um, how to do it, first of all, and then he immediately gets into the pitfalls. And I thought, gee, you know, this is kind of interesting. I'm, I'm surprised that people would have this many pitfalls with reading a book half an hour a day. But that was before I found out, listened to uh, the reactions from the people who were in my class and my own particular reaction to reading a book half an hour a day. And one of the most common ones was, um, I don't want to take time out of my personal reading to read this book for half an hour a day. This is pretty interesting. So we all came in with this intention that, or to develop an intention of doing this practice to support our basic intention, which um, is waking up, no? And um, many people have a very hard time doing it, a very, very hard time doing it. <clears throat> and they had it for different reasons. There wasn't enough time in the day. They didn't want to read something for just a half an hour. They wanted to read it for more than a half an hour. They couldn't believe that... Um, the amount of resistance that rose up. Initially, for some people, it was really easy and they really liked it. And then they got to a point where all of a sudden there just wasn't time in their lives to do this anymore. Some people immediately found there was no time in their life to do this. They just couldn't fit it in. They were so busy. <clears throat> and um, basically, I said you could read any book you want. If you want to read a novel and you can you know, show that this has application to your religious life, then you can read it. But most people chose to read something Dharma-related. Um, and the other thing was reading for half an hour. Um, a lot of people felt this somehow to read for a stated time period was too much like being told what to do. They had a very strong reaction to this. After a while, not immediately, but after a while. They didn't want to be told what to do. That came out very clearly. There was a lot of resistance. So in applying, opening the book and applying yourself to the book, you come to the book willing to be taught. You come to the book as a student. You come to the book uh, without defenses. You come to the book with as clear a page as you can, except with the intention of... Um, somehow finding something that will inspire your spiritual practice. This is how you come to the book. We came to the book with prejudice, with reaction, with negativity, often with terrible resistance. <clears throat> and I thought, you know, in many ways, this very small half-hour practice is a metaphor um, for what we do in our life. The place where we say, don't tell me what to do, where we have resistance to um, things that are happening. We think we want the truth. We think we want the truth. 
But to do the thing that leads us to the truth is a very big commitment. Because really what it is, is totally giving up in some way your preference. It's not even giving it up in some way. It's saying, okay, I'll do it. It's hard. In Japan, there's two ways of going into the monastery. Actually, there's, well, much more in Japan because it's so much in the culture. Either your father's a temple priest and you get automatically, if your father's a temple priest, you're the next temple priest if you're the eldest son. Or unless you can talk the next oldest son into doing it. And that's happened. Um, so at when you're uh, 18, unless you go to Komazawa University and you get your degree, in which case you go when you're 21. When you're 18, you get sent to one of the two major, if you're lucky, the two major training places, Heiji or Sojiji. Or you go to one of the smaller training places. And you stay there for at least a year, sometimes two, to get this training. And then you come back to your temple and you become your father's assistant. And when he dies, you become the abbot at that temple. It's a very regular thing. But there are some wild hairs in Japan. There are some people who actually think, what is this life? What is this life? What is the nature of this life? And what am I as a human being? And they can't do it in the middle of Tokyo. <clears throat> I just read somebody's autobiography lately where he, he, this was his description of what happened. He uh, was in World War II and they made him a kamikaze pilot. He actually went up, but he came back. I guess he was lucky enough to have landing gear because often they sent him off in planes that didn't have landing gear. He came back, and then when he got back, uh, his parents died very shortly after that. But his father had always said to him, well, you know, people go on. There's the land. Your land is very important. Hold on to it. So he thought, well, there's the land. I'll work it. But something happened to the land. He didn't inherit it the way he thought he was going to. So he returned to his high school in a state of funk, basically, and um, talked about philosophy with his friends. He became what I would think about kind of as a Zen, uh, kind of like the beat generation more really than a hippie. So by the time he was 20, he was roaming around with no family, which in Japan is major. Um, No real way to think about his life. Just uh, um, Nietzsche, I think, was the philosopher that he was most closely uh, tied to at that point. And um, at a loss completely at a loss. So he went to Daitokaji, which is one of the biggest Rinzai temples, to talk to the teacher there. And the teacher said to him, "Here, this is the way it is. You can either come here and trust me right now like that or get out and don't bother coming back. And here he was, he described himself with his long, filthy hair trailing over his chest, no shirt on, and some kind of something around his hips. Um, 
And he looked at him, the teacher looked at him, and he looked at the teacher, and he said, okay. That was the beginning of his training because there was no other place for him to go. He had no life at that point. He was alive, but there was no life for him. <clears throat> so, and he got trained, of course. You know, once he entered the monastic training, then uh, they told him what to do over and over again. So what is our life, and how do we live it? We profess to be Buddhists. All of us, I think, in this room have some connection with being Buddhists. But what is that? Now, I come from a particular tradition, Soto Zen. And so, um, you know, there's lots of different ways of talking about Buddhism. Buddhism is a very old religion. There's more sex in Buddhism than there are in Christianity, I'd be willing to bet. Um, as many ways as people have thought about it, it's been demonstrated in Buddhism just as it has in Christianity. There have been schisms, there's been splits, there's been subsects and splinters. There have been wars, just as there have been in Christianity. That's all happened. People haven't, you know, um, in the major religious past, people are people, no matter how they're trained to come to the truth. So when I talk about Soto Zen, I'm talking about a particular training. Um, Soto Zen is very interesting in its training. <clears throat> so <clears throat> when we come to Soto Zen, we say, your whole life is Zen. Your whole life is Buddha. The first place you find this out is when you sit down in the Zendo. Because the Zendo is where you can look at it in a certain way. But the rest of the time, um, your whole effort should be to manifest what is Buddha. We say Buddha, but actually it's truth. What's truth? What's the truth that is so complete and so actual and so real that when you see it, immediately you know it like that? in an uncompromising, total, complete, tender, compassionate fashion. Now, there are probably people in this room who have met somebody who's like that, whose whole life is the truth. And you know that because when you're in front of them, there's something that attracts you 
deeply at a gut level that you can't deny. So we have a version of this in Zen. Well, we don't have a version of it. We do have it in Zen. Because um, anybody who is a real teacher who's done this, who's gotten as far as I can get, is going to be teaching truth. And you know a teacher, not by the way they say, this is it, this is the true thing. You know a teacher because of how they are and how they what they do in the world. You see somebody who's completely digested the whole course of their training and come to some place. This teacher doesn't worry about enlightenment. This is not an issue. Digestion is the issue. And how do you know? Well, if you think about it, it's right here. When you eat, it goes through and it goes out. And what's left completely supports the vitality of your life. That's why you eat. Because you know when you don't eat, then you get weak and you feel a little weird and you get faint. But when you do eat and it's completely digested, then you can go out and run your marathon or do whatever it is you have to do and it's okay, you're supported. And this is the teacher who's completely digested. There's nothing left, there's no dregs. There's no feeling of stickiness and ego. There's just this. So how does that happen in Zen? This is just a way, right? This is just a way. One of many. Um, I think it's interesting because it happens to be what I experienced. I continue to experience. Um, the real drawback with Zen is that someplace you have to commit yourself to sitting down for a long, long time into a particular kind of training. And um, although there are many excellent and good Zen teachers now in the United States, all their teachers, all their students, still have to come to them and say, yes, I'm going to do this, I'm going to take it on, I'm going to sit for a certain number of hours a day, I'm going to sit sashin, if you tell me what to do, I'm going to do it, because I see you as somebody who's pretty, has digested pretty well. And um, taking on doing what somebody tells you to do, and taking on sitting a certain number of hours, is a fairly major thing in your life. <clears throat> This practice is not based on books. This practice is a very experiential thing. This practice is a lot about cleaning the toilets when you get clean, taught, told to clean the toilets. It's a lot about cooking. It's a lot about cleaning, much cleaning. <laughs> More cleaning than you can possibly know. <laughs> In fact, um, it's a lot about your teacher saying to you, I don't think so. Go back and sit some more. It's a lot about looking at what's going on when you sit. 
what did the Buddha teach about meditation? He said two things. If you read the sutras over and over again, you'll see two things. He said, clearly aware and mindfully aware. Clearly aware is when you um, know that you have the intention to do this. You have a clear awareness of what it is you're setting down to do. Mindfully aware is the attention you bring to what's actually going on for you. So how many people here can tell me in the past half hour that we just meditated, what actually happened? Okay, well, let's work on it a little bit. <laughs> so this is what meditation is. Meditation is knowing what's going on. When you know what's going on, then actually... Um, you begin to see what your tendencies are. Your tendencies are not always so pleasant. Your tendencies may have to do with anger, revenge, envy, jealousy, anxiety. It may not feel so good sometimes to meditate. Sometimes you have these really pleasant times when it feels good and you're blissful. And sometimes you have these times when you're really overwhelmed by a lot of emotional stuff. Other times you may find that you just can't stop thinking. This must be familiar. You just can't stop thinking. Okay. <clears throat> so the object of meditation is just to know what's happening. It's not to make anything go away. It truly is not. It's not to make yourself stop thinking. It's not to have a completely blank mind. Because we don't have blank minds. We have this stuff that goes on over and over and over again. <clears throat> and in fact, the nature of our curiosity and the nature of finding out truth is to know what goes on in our minds. And when you look at your mind, what you find is nothing stays the same. There's not one thought you have that's eternal. Not one. Well, if anyone has one, please tell me. Not only is the thought not eternal, but neither are you. You're all in the process of aging. The minute you're born, you're born to die. So now I sit here with a lot of gray in my hair, and occasionally I look at myself in the mirror and I think, gee, that's different. That's different. There's a place in my mind where I'm three, 15, 20, 30. I think these places are real, but actually 
what you're looking at is 61. But in the mind, there is no time. And it can be very delusive because you want to go back. But we're born to die in this whole life from beginning to end. <clears throat> there will come a time when, um, and we don't know when, like the poem says, I always knew this day would come, but yesterday I did not know it would be today. So there will come a time, and maybe we'll actually face death consciously, which we kind of like to think we will, and maybe it will come at us from behind because some muni bus will go whack and we won't know anything about it. Right? There's lots of different ways for this to happen. Now, um, this shouldn't be too hard to do. Everybody think of something that's going on in their life or has gone on in their life where they had just real resistance. Real resistance. Didn't want to do it. Really didn't want to do it. I'll give you my example. Okay. At Zen Center, we had uh, we have a standard form of service which we've been doing for many, many, many years. And within the past three years, they took all the sutras that we've been chanting that I've been chanting since I was, you know a mere young thing in Zen, and change them all, change the wording, change a lot of things. I have huge resistance to this, huge. I don't want to chant these chants. I don't want to do this. I want to do the things I do. The thing I knew was what I want. Okay? This is very strong, very strong. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. In your life, okay? Think about that. Now, think about dying where you have no choice. How do you take it? The time will come where we can't say no. How do we say yes? What is this truth that enables us to say yes? It's not simply emptiness. It's not no mind at all. It's a living, vital thing. And the way we find it is by being present with everything we are and eating it completely and then shitting it out completely and what's left what's left is the presence and vitality that enables us to live life completely and die completely
I don't think that this is something that you can only attain by practicing Soto Zen. I don't believe this at all. What I do believe is that anybody who has strong attention and a way to practice meditation um, and somebody to talk to whom they're willing to listen to and be guided by can do this. It doesn't depend on robes. It doesn't depend on being ordained. It doesn't depend on any of that for none of you. And I think you all want to. We all do. (coughs) But what it does depend on is knowing what happened in the last half hour. Big time. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit from the place of um, this isn't exactly well it is this is a little bit uh, not actually the official Soto Zen version of how to meditate because that's just count from 1 to 10 and it took me years to realize what it meant counting from 1 to 10 this is more my eclectic personal version that I've developed over some time that I'm going to talk about. Speaking of which. (laughs) Actually, it's almost a quarter of 12, and I I really would like to do questions and answers. So um, I'm feeling a little caught here, but... (laughs) Having led up to it, I think I'll go ahead briefly. This will be very brief. When you sit, no matter how you sit, whether you're sitting in a chair or sitting on your sabatons in his office, um, the major a major point is to find a place where you feel a sense of solidity and contact. Whether that's your butt on the sofa or your hands or your hands on your legs, this is okay. Some place that you can come back to. in the places where you're feeling overwhelmed or um, nothing especially seems to be going on or a place for you to begin, (coughs) this contact is a very solid thing. I don't um, actually think it's a requirement that you sit bolt upright. I sit bolt upright because of many, many years of doing so. But I don't necessarily think that this is the only way you have to sit. Uh, Many people slump. It's okay. You just can't breathe as deeply. That's all. 
I used to be like this too for a long time. Sometimes the meditation itself draws you upright and you find that you can do it. Other times you just might sort of slump. And um, at other times you go to sleep and so you sort of drift back and forth like this. Sometimes way back and forth. The main thing is for you to find a stable posture, however you're doing it. And if you're sitting in a chair, probably good to keep both of your feet on the floor because that's a much more stable posture. And the next thing, when you bring your mind, when you bring your attention to your mind, um, let's see. In the first place, you do bring your attention to your mind. And that is a sort of unfamiliar thing for many people. So when you close your eyes and you do what you think is looking at your mind, lots of different stuff will start to happen. And initially, certainly at first, it will be very confusing because most people have really never sat down and looked. Um, so you'll get a lot of thoughts or a lot of images or a lot of whatever is going on. But as you continue to sit over a period of time, you will find that stuff begins to slow down uh, and not be so intense and that there are moments between the thoughts and between the images of quietness. The quietness is not something to attain. It's actually uh, something that happens with, it's just, it's an effect of the meditation, essentially. And I think in um as you apply yourself continuously to noticing what's happening, there's a place that you notice from. And in my body, I identify that somewhere in the back of my skull. It's not uh, an I thing. It's not me watching. It's a place of consciousness. And that consciousness is awareness. It's not what we think about as ego. It's simply awareness. And that awareness is um, what you're attempting to cultivate so that you can see what's happening. Okay, that's very brief and probably enough because I actually do want to take questions. Um, this is an ongoing thing, truth. You don't get to one moment of truth and then you have the whole thing because that makes it fixed and that's not where we are. Truth is a vital, energetic, ever-flowing thing. It's there all the time. We all have it. Um, and this has been just a little bit about how to connect to that truth that's here for all of you, for all of us. As we sit in this room, we're all connected. Little lines are going out everywhere <coughs> and the basis of the line is truth when you have the truth you see everybody's the same and that's a great thing it's a great thing
and you can hold to it. You all have it. Okay. Roger. Um, I'd like you to say a little bit more about this resistance because I think it's a very uh, West Coast California thing, but it's uh, spreading. Um, that people say, I don't want to be told what to do, so I don't want the ethical, don't tell me the ethical precepts, and I don't want any doctrine either. I don't want to be taught anything. And that seems to leave the person entirely in their own mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not I, I'm not sure how to respond to that. Uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about this resistance to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um. Well, in the first place, I think to acknowledge resistance is a definite recognition and step and a fruit of meditation. Um, most frequently, people will come to me and they'll say, you know what? I just ran into it with this other person and they said something to me I didn't like. And I got really mad. Really mad. <laughs> And then my most common response, because uh, this is reactivity, my most common response is, how did that happen? How did they make you mad? Could I make you mad? If I really worked on it right now, could I make you mad? Can I make you sad? Could I do any of that? If you really didn't want to be mad, could I make you mad? Anybody? Sure. No. You think? Uh, you can make me mad if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I did? I guess, I guess it's me that I Well, what I found over a period of time is that no one makes me mad. What really happens is my stuff comes warring up. And how do I know that? Because different people can say the same thing to me. At one time I get mad, and another time I don't. It's true. And if you think about it in your lives with your friends, you'll find it's true. And that has to do with you, not with them. So uh, initially, the first part about resistance is knowing that it's you. It really is you. Now, how many people in this room have some feeling about Mr. Bush? (laughs) (laughs) Is Mr. Bush making you have this feeling? Think so, huh? Oh, yeah. All the respect. And everyone I know. 
Okay. Here's the homework. This is this is about. <clears throat> now you're going to resist this. Okay. This will be a cause for resistance. In your next period of meditation, I want you to consider exactly how it is Mr. Bush makes you feel feeling you're feeling. And you're going to say to me, look what he's doing! And I'm going to say to you, that has nothing at all to do with how you're reacting to him. He's doing what he's doing, and you're doing what you're doing. It's true. Now that doesn't mean that um, you can't have an opinion, and you will, about what's happening. I kind of have a feeling about what's happening. I don't want to see anybody get hurt. I don't care what their nationality is. I don't want to see anybody get hurt. But I don't, um, and this is not the usual, I know. Um, I don't impute this solely to Mr. Bush. He is like uh, the tip of the iceberg. I'm much more interested in the iceberg. How it is I go to war? How do I go to war? How do I go to war? And how do I live in peace? So, next time, how do you go to war? Because when you disagree with Mr. Bush, that's your personal war. Yeah. But he's blowing up the world I'm sitting on. <coughs> I'm sorry? He's blowing up the world I'm sitting on. <laughs> Here's the assumptions, okay? Um... It's not okay to blow up the world. But somewhere along the line, the world is going to die. Maybe it's now. And we know we're a prime target. The Golden Gate Bridge. Um, Maybe not now. How many wars have there been? How many people would cheerfully have blown up the world in the past if they had the means to do it. How many tribes have been wiped out? World War II wasn't the first time, believe me. Not by a long shot. So I don't know. Um, And it's not that I'm saying don't be socially active. It's not that I'm saying don't go out there and say we don't want to kill. It's not right to do this. It's not right to be a bully. It's not right to do this. And we have to know in ourselves the places where we're bullies, the places where we want to kill, the place where our anger leads us to in our own lives, not simply on the international scene, but in our own lives, 
um, conflict and anguish as a result. So, where do you go to war with Mr. Bush? Yeah. Well, it's interesting your talk is about resistance because that's exactly what I'm feeling right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, in all due respect, Captain, I think what I'm hearing sounds so bloodless and lifeless. So what? Bloodless and lifeless. Really? I, I, I mean, it, it seems like there's misdirected anger and then there's directed anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can see that, that anger, use anger as an example, I can see anger is, is, a, is a volatile emotion that, that, that it can get into a, a, a place where we lose control and react it in harmful, hurtful ways. I also think that there is an intelligent, centered anger that helps fuel our passion and help us go ahead and, mm-hmm. and Fight the good fight. I don't think being, you know, protesting against Bush and what he's doing as far as, as, as waging his unnecessary war, without having a sense of, 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 of anger about it, is going to do much. You need to have something that's going to have a passion there. I don't want to like strike out and hurt or 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 um, you know, fight physically, but I do want. To, I do feel my anger help motivate me to do what has to be done to, to, to try to put a stop to this. And without mm-hmm. the anger, you won't have the energy to make that happen. That's my, that's mm-hmm. my thought. I, just, I don't think you agree with me, but that's my thought. I don't, I, I don't disagree at all with what you say about anger. <clears throat> it, is, it is very strong, and we all always have the potential not only for anger, but also for love and all the other feelings that we have. <clears throat> I think um, what struck me the most about it is how when anger comes uh, as a reactive form, and it often does, against something else, not as something that comes from within, as something that you know consciously that's coming up to support and that um, exists in the moment, not as uh, something that you hold on to to justify yourself, which I often hear. Um, then, then it's clean. Then there's no stickiness around it. If you live your life constantly angry, then something is going on. For me, anyway. It's one of the, it's, it, the times when I've lived my life angry, I found it hasn't worked so well. The times when anger has come up for me like that, and I've said, I'm angry about what's going on. I don't like this. I don't like what's happening and I want to do something about it. That's um, a much clearer thing for me. And I think that's the whole, for me, the, the whole process of meditation and learning is just about that. To be able to have it come up, be clean, and have the action that comes from it be clean, uh, and then let it go and go on to the next and not hold on to it and make it a thing that we use to kind of justify actions that maybe it doesn't justify so well. So yes, I agree, yes. When I, I, when people do bad things, especially if I see it as bad things to me, uh, 
one or another degree is, I'd like to kill them, make them stop doing this. And it seems to me that when that's the motivation under our anger, um, then the only difference between them and me in this particular situation is they have power and I don't. That they have power? Have power and I don't. Uh. So I wonder for how many people the thought arises in their mind if I could do it with impunity, I'd kill him and solve this problem. Uh-huh. And then the question is, what's the difference between me and me, except that he has power and I don't? Well, you're speaking to a major force in human life when you talk about power and authority, who exerts it, and how how you feel, how, uh, how it comes up in your life. Um... And it can be very small things that bring this up. To recognize your feeling of helplessness and observe it clearly and to watch it not be there all the time is a kind of foundational thing here. This, you know, to say these words in a way is empty. All I can do is say to you all right now that I prove the truth of this myself in doing this in my practice. Um, And I'm not proselytizing for it. (coughs) I'm just coming here and saying it can be done. It can be done. And the way uh, has always been consciousness and awareness (coughs) and some real gut feeling that you want to do this. Because in doing it, you do shift. And you have to be willing to do that. You do shift. We're actually over 12 o'clock, so... Um, Thank you, Kathleen, for a very uh, challenging and uh, rich uh, talk. Um, With lots to think about. So we'll move on to some very mundane announcements. Jack is our host.
any questions, if you have any questions, I can say I don't know and point you or something. <laughs> <laughs> Charles, a reminder that talks are available on the internet at the GBF website, gaybuddhist.org. David? Hmm. Um, next week is our all Sangha meeting. We uh, are kind of part of this uh, governance uh, <coughs> uh, thing that we've uh, are just starting. So this is really the first time I'm having one of these meetings. So please come. Um, most of the positions seem pretty stable, I think. Editors and uh, treasurers and people have been taking care of There are a couple people stepping down from the um, steering committee. So we really need some people to consider if you haven't done that in a while or if you have never done it. It really is a, a small commitment of time. We only have now four Sunday meeting, I mean, uh, steering committee meetings uh, since they're bi-monthly and two of those others are, are really a ceremony and then a general meeting. So, it's not a lot of work, but we need a, a certain number of people to keep it going. They do serve this function of kind of networking with everybody. So I really encourage you to think about whether you can do that for this year. Okay, let's hold hands. Catherine, would you give us a, a blessing? Okay, can we say a little prayer? Mm -hmm. Will you say a little something when we hold hands? The closing? Can you say a closing? Um, say a closing? Yeah. Sure. May all beings be happy. May they be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May they be free from anxiety. And may they be at peace. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.